0: Philemon, you can pass it if you're not careful. If you find the book of Hebrews, just look to your left. It's right between Hebrews and Titus, the book of Philemon. And potentially when I said we're going to cover the book of Philemon, you, like my family said when they said, Dad, what are we uh, studying tomorrow morning for church? And I said, well, we're going to study the whole book of Philemon. They said, the whole book? What what are you going to do? uh, uh, Well... It, it, it's kind of more like a postcard uh, rather than a letter. Uh, as you can see, it's only one page. Uh, but my family still, that wasn't very convincing. They said, Dad, that's still 25 verses. Do you know how long you could talk on 25 <laughs> 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 verses? So uh, by the grace of God, maybe I'll uh, have to just talk less and read more of God's Word, which that's always a better thing. Uh, his Word's what doesn't return void, not mine. So we'll look at this together, and obviously we might not be able to it as much on every detail, but we'll trust the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts still. But I'd like, as it's a letter, to look at the whole thing as a unit rather than break it up. So if your turn, you found Philemon, stand with me if you would. I still like to read through it, and this is how it would be read in the ancient church. They would read straight through the entire letter as this letter was received. Philemon says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved of Thea, our our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother." Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Anisimus, whom I begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. For I am sending him back, You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you then count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand to you that you owe me... Excuse me, I palm writing with my own hand, I will repay, not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greet you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And Father, we lift this time before you as we continue now to to worship as we sang and prayed and fellowshiped. We, We consider that and this, Lord, all a part of our worship of you. And we just ask that you'd help us now to continue to worship in spirit and in truth. As we open your word, we pray that your truth would set us free from wrong ideas or wrong attitudes, wrong understandings, that your truth would liberate us and that it would say to us what we need to hear personally and that your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives in personal and powerful ways. Lord, we ask you to bless your word And minister to our hearts and help us to be able to receive what you would have us to hear this morning from this letter. As we study it this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, sometimes in a book, it seems that it's almost necessary for there to maybe be a chapter of bad events in order to bring about. A glorious ending to the story. And in this letter of Philemon, I think you really have that concept illustrated. You have this concept illustrated as we look through the letter, you'll see where in a sense there was a bad chapter. There was a bad chapter in the story of Philemon's life. There was a bad chapter in the story of Onesimus' life. But yet even though there was kind of a rather rotten chapter in their life, it really ultimately served to bring about the glorious ending that God ultimately had intended for it. And we'll see that as we look at this story together. Now, as we study this letter, again, it's a short letter. As I said, it's rather almost more like a New Testament postcard in comparison to some of the longer letters. It doesn't quite have as much doctrinal weight to it like we'll see in the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews, the very next letter, but so many doctrinal truths that Paul the Apostle writes about in his other letters are illustrated by this very personal letter that he writes to this man who was a friend of his Philemon. It's almost essential, and I want to just take a few moments to, to sort of lay the backdrop a little bit of this letter, because it will help us as we go through it together to understand why Paul's writing it and what his intention is as we kind of read it to familiarize ourselves with it basically the backdrop is this philemon and paul the apostle seem to be two very close and intimate friends we can tell from the text it seems that paul actually was the one who led philemon to christ you notice how paul is he's pleading there when we read he said look you owe me as it is your very life the idea is i'm the one who led you to christ it's the least you could do to take into consideration what i'm asking of you here uh, we know that Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. It's one of his prison epistles, like Colossians, like the book of Philippians. He's writing this from his imprisonment there in Rome. And the reason he is writing is because of an encounter that he has had with this man, Onesimus. <clears throat> now, Onesimus, obviously, we can tell from our text, was basically at one time a household servant or slave Under the mastery or the authority of this man, Philemon, who our book is named after and who Paul is writing this correspondence to. Philemon lived in the area of Colossae, was a part, no doubt, of the Colossian church. We have the book of Colossians. And it seems that he was a wealthier man. We know that one because obviously he had household servants or those who worked for him slaves in that culture. So typically that indicated greater wealth as well as we can see in verse two that a portion if not all of the church it says met in his house which indicates he probably had a larger Home, which would indicate that he was probably a man of means and a man of wealth, that he was able to have a large enough household to either have an entire church gathering meeting in his home, if not maybe just a portion of the church that he could house maybe, again, a a home fellowship and many of the churches in that day uh, met in households rather than buildings. So we know the background of Philemon a little bit and the story unfolds in this way. Here's Philemon and Anisimus is his servant or his household slave. And yet what clearly transpires is at some point Anisimus runs away from the authority of his master Philemon. And he is a runaway slave, what would be called a fugitive in that day, which was a capital crime. If you were caught as a runaway slave or a runaway servant, you could be put to death for doing such. Keep in mind, in this culture, there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman culture in that time. It was commonplace. And the Bible does nothing to argue and dispute and try and fight against the issue of slavery. It never condones it, but it speaks truths and principles to help regulate what was a practice culturally that already existed. And here... In this situation, Anisimus at some point runs away from Philemon. It seems as well that he probably stole from his master as well, whether property or wealth and resources, and no doubt that would have created tremendous hurt and animosity and anger especially because of the fact that many a times masters didn't treat their slaves or household servants cruelly. They took good care of them. Uh, They sometimes embraced them almost like family members. And there's been this tremendous hurtful experience where Onesimus has run off, Philemon has in a sense been ripped off, not only of one of his servants or quote-unquote employees, but also it seems some wealth or resources maybe were stolen. And as Onesimus runs away, he apparently at some point, by God's divine providence, has an encounter with the Apostle Paul. And somehow, as he runs to Rome, leaving the area of Colossae, he goes to Rome, which is like the epicenter. If you're going to go to a you know, run away, go to a big city and have a blast and nobody will find you in the midst of the population of Rome. And as he's in Rome by God's divine providence, lo and behold, he ends up somehow encountering the apostle Paul and Paul leads Onesimus, this runaway slave to Christ. And then it seems that he stays with Paul and actually begins to serve Paul and to minister to him in the midst of his time of ministry and even his imprisonment there while he was in Rome. And Paul realizing, look, I know you're saved and you've come to Christ and you're a blessing to serve me, but nonetheless, I need to send you back to Philemon. It is the right thing. He finds out that his master was Philemon and Paul says, are you kidding me? You're talking about Philemon? Philemon who lives on 123 Mulberry Street back in Colossae, that fine leman, I know him. I actually led him to Christ. I know. You've got to go back and make things right. Well, Paul, if I go back, he'll kill me. He'll, 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 he'll take my... No, listen, we have got to trust the Lord. I'll write a letter of intercession on your behalf, but you've got to go back, Onesimus, and make things right. And you need to trust that God's forgiveness and love will somehow cover the situation and let me write a letter on your behalf to send it ahead in advance since I know Philemon and intercede with him to perhaps receive you and and to forgive you and that there might be restoration in your relationship so that's sort of the backdrop of what's being described here in our letter let's begin to look at it he says paul as he introduces himself verse one notice a prisoner of christ jesus again indicating he's writing this during the time of his imprisonment and timothy our brother notice paul he doesn't say an apostle of christ jesus Many of his letters, I believe nine out of the 13 of the New Testament letters Paul writes, he refers to himself as an apostle, designating his apostolic authority as God called him to that role. But here, notice, it's not a letter to a church. It's not even one of the pastoral epistles. This is a letter from one friend to another because he says, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. This is correspondence probably in one of the most personal ways that you see Paul writing it. It's a letter from one friend to another To another, it's like you writing an email or a text. It's not because of business. It's not because you're trying to deal with a you know an an issue on a level with it. it, It's correcting. This is a personal correspondence between two people who have an intimate relationship. They're friends. There's a strong bond of relationship. And Paul is now writing this letter. It's probably one of the more personal letters that we have because of that thing, thing that it's not written to a church in a corrective or an instructive way, but it's personal correspondence. It's very relational in its tone. It shows us a lot of the Paul the Apostle's heart in many ways. But notice he identifies himself in this letter by the Holy Spirit directing him as the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, circumstantially, Paul was a prisoner of who? Of Rome. But he doesn't say, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. Paul, a prisoner of Nero. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, he was a prisoner under Roman authority, and he was in prison for his faithfulness to the gospel. Paul hadn't violated the law he hadn't done something wrong and got incarcerated, as most people do get incarcerated for their errors and their law-breaking. Paul was incarcerated or imprisoned, uh, basically because of his faithfulness to God's call on his life. And because he was standing for the gospel and preaching the gospel, he had become imprisoned uh, because of that. And yet, Paul, in his mentality, notice, has such an eternal and spiritual perspective. He calls himself a prisoner of of Christ, Paul, you're a prisoner of Rome. No, I'm not. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. The reason I'm confined to this unpleasant situation is because Jesus wants me confined to this unpleasant situation. See, Paul knew at any moment... Jesus could have intervened to protect him from entering into that imprisonment and dealing with the unpleasant circumstances. And he also knows that at any moment, Jesus could intervene and blow open the prison door cells and let him out and set him free. In in Acts chapter 12, the church prayed and an angelic Remember, messenger came and broke open the doors where Peter was in prison and Peter was set free. And Paul knew, look, the only reason I got in prison, the only reason I am still in prison is because for some purpose, the Lord has allowed me to be imprisoned. Now, there's a tremendous lesson in that of maturity. And I think very simply it's this, is that the Lord may keep us confined in an unpleasant circumstance if it has some purpose or reason in our life as a part of his plan. Now, we may not enjoy the unpleasant circumstances. Certainly, we don't want to sign up for the prison experience. We don't want to sign up for the tragedy or the difficulty or the hard time. But to have the perspective where you can say, you know what, if God wants to get me out of this, he could get me out of this. If God didn't want this to happen, God could have stopped it from happening. He controls everything. And therefore, to realize, I am in this situation because there is some purpose, there is some plan, and listen, God cares more about what is eternal and spiritual. We'll see it in this book illustrated than he does our temporal comfort than he does making everything pleasant and cheery always in our lives, because many times God can use the hard things to produce greater things. Think about it. When Paul was stuck in prison, what did he do? He wrote letters. Are you glad that Paul was in prison to write a few letters? I don't know about you, but a few hundred thousands of years later, I'm benefiting from his imprisonment because he had time to slow down. Instead of preaching and planting more churches, the Spirit of God used him to write some New Testament letters which minister to me to this day, which help me to this day. And Paul had a great understanding of this. And I'll tell you, this book of Philemon really... It can be studied from various different perspectives. You, you'll find lessons as you go through this, and I would encourage you read it, go back and reread it, because you can really look at this book from different perspectives and topics. There, you can study the book of Philemon, and it has a lot to teach about relationships and how to interact with other people in healthy ways. You can study the book of Philemon from the perspective of forgiveness, the importance of seeking forgiveness as well as the importance of extending forgiveness like Philemon is being asked to. Uh, This book is a great lesson on making things right when something bad has happened. You can study the book of Philemon from a leadership perspective. You want to know how to lead better in an organization or a business or in ministry? There are great lessons on leadership as you look at how Paul handles this situation here in the book of Philemon. It is a great book and you can study it from the perspective of wise communication. So many times I take the lessons of Philemon and utilize them when I need to communicate with people in situations. There are great communication principles that you can see in this book. It's a book that teaches about the providence of God, how he superintends all affairs and makes them all work together for his ultimate purposes. It's a great book to teach about intercession, to serve as a peacemaker. As you see Paul doing that very thing, trying to reconcile to people because of a relationship issue, and it's also a picture of Christ's intercession. And now he intercedes on our behalf and ultimately helps us to receive the forgiveness that we need. So Paul writing to Philemon, his dear friend, his fellow laborer, he says verse two to the beloved Aphia, which is a feminine name. Many believe that could actually be uh, Philemon's wife. To Archippus, our fellow soldier, and Colossians 4 references that same gentleman, and notice, to the church in your house. So it's a letter written to Philemon personally, but it seems it was to then be read out loud among the gathering, the church assembly that met in the home of this man Philemon. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The typical Pauline greeting, always grace first and peace second, because as we come to know God's grace first, then and only then can we really have inner peace in our life. You always see it in that order, but a typical ancient greeting, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 4 through 7 now, what Paul first does, we'll see, is he says some encouraging words to his friend. He says some complimentary things. Before he jumps right into the meat of his dialogue or says the more weighty or difficult thing, the first thing he does is he gives a little encouragement. He doesn't just jump right into the hard issue, to the difficulty. The first thing he does is he expresses appreciation for him. He commends him for what he's doing well. And he starts in verse 4 by just saying to him, Philemon, he says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. Notice again, Paul was a man of prayer. Notice all his letters, his correspondence, he always is referencing his prayer life. And I don't think he was doing it to brag or to show that somehow he was spiritual. It just was such a natural part of his life that he's always communicating, I'm praying for you about this. I'm praying about that. Hey, I want you to know. And it it just was such a natural aspect of his life. He was a man of prayer. No wonder why Paul was used so powerfully. He was used so powerfully because he was a man of the word and he was a man of prayer. He was someone who valued and esteemed prayer. He says here, again, not even just that he would necessarily be making long intercessions. He says, Philemon, I thank God for you making mention of you in my prayers. In other words, as I'm praying, the Lord brings you to mind and I mention you before the Lord. Prayers don't have to be long. Sometimes you can just make mention of those who are important. There are certain people in my life that are just kind of locked in my mental bank or especially they have find out something's going on in their life where I just try and at least every day mention them before the Lord just to bring them before the Lord's throne to ask His work to continue in their life. And he says, Philemon, I just want you to know, I thank God for you, brother. I thank God for you. He says, making mention of you always in my prayers Here's why he says, hearing of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He says, I'm so thankful to hear of the not only the faith and love that you have for Jesus. But he says, the tremendous love that I hear that you have for all the saints. Philemon was someone who was known not just to have a strong faith in Jesus and a love for the Lord, but he had a love for God's people. And he says, it blesses my heart to hear about the tremendous love, not just that you have for the Lord, but that you really love all the saints, the people of God, that you are hospitable, that you open your home to let the church meet in your house. He says, I thank God for this. Verse six, he says that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you. In Christ Jesus. He says, and I'm praying too that, that as you have faith and you love the believers, he says, I'm praying as well that you would be noticed. He says, verse five, they're effective. I know you're sharing your faith, but I just pray that the Lord would make you effective in your ministry as you serve him and seek to share your faith. And he says that comes out of the overflow of understanding every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. As you know what's in you in Christ Jesus, he says, I pray that would make you effective to then share it with others. And can I say this morning by way of learning for us, that is the greatest method of evangelism is when you understand the good things that Christ Jesus has done in your life and you just tell people about it. Not when you run around with, again, I'm not being critical here, but you run around with a four spiritual laws and, and you're following this little protocol or program and, and trying to proselytize everybody, but no, but when you just live your life and you find out and discover every wonderful thing Jesus has done for you and you want to tell people about it. There's something very personal about that because people can dispute, you know, information, but it's hard to dispute against a changed life. And when you just know the good things that the Lord has done in you and how he's worked in your life and you're able to share that with others, Paul says, I, I pray you'd be real effective, that you'd be more effective in sharing your faith with others. Verse seven, he says, for we have great joy and consolation in your love. He says because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you brother So again, he's just commending what he knows, what he's been hearing about Philemon, how he's this man who loves the Lord, how he's demonstrating his love for the people of God, how he's actively sharing his faith, and Paul's excited to hear about this. Again, Paul knows that he's hosting in his home the church or a portion of the church for meetings. And he says in verse 7, commending him there, he says as well, he says, It is so good to know that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you. I look at that and I think, wow, what a great commendation to be somebody who is known to bring refreshment to God's people. What a great thing to aspire for, to want to be somebody not who's draining God's people, who's, who's a burden on God's people, but to be somebody like Jesus who enters into the midst like there in John 13 and he sees a bunch of dirty feet and he doesn't say, hey, why is nobody washing feet around here? Sure stinks in here. It's awful dirty in here. Somebody should be taking care of this. Instead, he says, how can I serve? H- how can I refresh others? You know, can I encourage you, when you come to church, when you gather around, look for ways that you can refresh others. Not just what can I get and how can I be ministered to, but how can I refresh someone else? In your home, look for, hey, how can I bring refreshment? Somebody's got to do this. It's inconvenient. Nobody wants to do it. You know how how can I how can I do this? How can I take? it? How can I be a refreshment to somebody else by doing something in some way that will bless, whether my spouse or my parents or or whatever? Just a great attitude here that we can have as we look at the example of Philemon. And when you look at verse four to seven, would you agree? Philemon looks like a pretty good guy. I mean, in essence, you could look at what Paul says. I mean, you can say this is a really good man. This is a good man. He loves the Lord. He's got love and faith for the Lord Jesus. He loves God's people. He's hospitable. He's using his home to host church gatherings. He's sharing his faith. He's refreshing people in the Lord. Paul's saying, you're a good man. And guess what? Paul's going to say, now that's going to be tested in a practical way. This love that you have for people, now your love's going to be tested when you find out what I'm going to ask you in a few moments about receiving back (laughs) Onesimus who's greatly wronged you. And many times the Lord does that. He tests us in the greatest areas of what seem to be our strength. Verse eight, he says, therefore, now he gets to the heart of what he's going to ask. Though I might be very bold in Christ, Paul says, to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So Paul begins now to get to the point of his matter. He says, look Philemon, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you something here. I'm going to make a request of you. Something I'd like you to do, to be responsive to. And look with me if you would in verse 8 and 9. Again, Paul says, I realize, Philemon, that I could be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. In other words, Paul knew that he was an apostle. He had apostolic authority in the Lord. He genuinely did. At times he utilized his apostolic authority when he spoke to other churches. And no doubt as a part of his leadership role, whether again spiritually or in business or organization, there's a time where if you have God-given authority, you need to utilize your authority. You need to exercise your authority. And Paul says, I realize it would be fitting. It would be acceptable for me to do that. I'm an apostle. And I could say, listen, Philemon, I know we're friends, but I'm an apostle. I'm a pastor. So, Philemon, because I'm an apostle, I, you know, I'm just going to tell you what you need to do in the Lord. You, you need to do this, and, and you should be submissive to that and responsive. And he says, I could be bold and exert my apostolic authority and the idea is, is just order you what's the right thing to do and, and you should respond to what I order you to do. But he says, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to order you what to do, though I could. I don't want to demand of you what to do. Instead, he says, verse 9, I would rather appeal to you in love. I'm not demanding of you what to do, I'm in love begging of you. I'm asking you for love's sake. I want you to do what's right for love's sake. Uh, Again, I look at this and I think, what a reminder for us that authority, yes, authority has its purpose. It has its purpose. But authority does not have to be used unnecessarily. And too often in our culture, and let me just go one step further and say, I think even among Christianity people get a little too hung up in enjoying using their authority, exerting their authority. Listen, look at Jesus. He had the authority of heaven and earth. And Jesus didn't go around exerting his authority. Instead, what did Jesus do? In humility and meekness, which is authority under control, he was a servant. Jesus said, You've, you know how the Gentiles, they, they love the Gentile people to lord it over people to exert their authority to demand people and to order people around and and people love authority some people are drunk with authority and they love to utilize their authority in strong ways almost in a perverse way for their own psyche and authority has its place but authority doesn't ever have to be used unnecessarily and i'll tell you this the bible shows us here paul's demonstration incredible example I tell you this, appealing in love is always much more powerful relationally with a person than demanding and ordering by force. Can I encourage you even as parents to use wisdom at times? As a parent, do I have authority over my children? You bet I do. And I understand that. And I take that seriously. And I've parented that way for almost 18 years with my three children. But I also realize that as they begin to grow and mature at times, I can appeal to their conscience and say, look, I could just tell you what to do here, but in love. I'm asking you, what do you think is the right choice here? What do you think you ought to do in this situation? I'm not going to force you to, but what do you, and and to just let love be a motivator, love for the Lord, maybe love and respect for me to say, you know what? I want to please you, dad, because I respect you. And, and, and what a wonderful lesson to realize that sometimes in situations, maybe you're in a situation where you could just tell somebody what to do, but maybe it might be wise to say, look, I, I, I'm asking you, would you consider this? and to exercise the value and the love of relationship, maybe then feeling so pressured to have to control or to force something in a situation, to give someone room to sort of make a decision and to appeal to their heart in love. Paul says, I'm appealing to you. Verse 10, he shows him Now what? I appeal to you, he says, for my son Onesimus. And I'm sure when Philemon heard that, he went, what? Onesimus? I mean, he just, I... I you know, he's anything like me, I picture the veins starting to, you know, pulsate out of his neck. He's Anismus, that stinking rat, that runaway slave. <laughs> That's kind of what it's like in the Greek. He's just, I'm under, under, under the surface there. That's what I sense. He hears that name. I mean, be realistic. This guy is, ran away. He betrayed him. He stole something from him. And now he finds out that he's alive. And, he, and, and Paul says, I'm appealing to you for Anisimus whom I have begotten while in my chains, which is basically a term or a phrase, Paul indicating, guess what? He's been born again. He's been born while in my chains. He's had a spiritual birth experience. Paul, in a sense, is saying, look, just like I led you to Christ and you were born again under my ministry, guess what? The same things happened with Nissimus. As a result of my imprisonment here as a slave, I as well am a slave to the Roman government. I'm a prisoner as well. He says, he's now come to Christ. And he says, verse 11, I know that he was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. So Paul is letting Philemon know that what he is asking here, he's going to say in the next verse, I'm sending him back. He's asking Philemon, listen, I'm sending your runaway slave back to you. But he's different now. He's saved. Jesus has forgiven him of his sin. Jesus is the Lord of his life. He's a brand new man now. He's not who he once was. God's worked in his life as the result of the unfortunate thing that's transpired. And he says here to him, I'm sending him back to you. And he says, I realize, verse 11, that he was once unprofitable to you, but now... Notice, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. He says, now he's profitable both to you and to me. Now, I look at this as I think of what happened with Onesimus. Again, he runs away. He does his master wrong. He cheats him. He robs of him. And I don't know what kind of a servant or worker he was before. But Paul here, by the Holy Spirit, says, look, I know he was once unprofitable, but now he is profitable. And I look at this description of Onesimus and I think to myself, man, what a reminder how the Lord can take a life and he can take a life maybe that is just unprofitable and maybe it was a worthless life. Maybe somebody was wasting their life and they were just an absolute mess and he can take any life and he can transform it. And take a life that was unprofitable and a wasted life and a useless life and a failing life. I and mean, we go, that is the most unprofitable human being on this planet. Not only are they not contributing anything, they are actually like a failing business in the red, millions of dollars in the debt, sucking everything and everyone dry around them. And God can get a hold of a life like that. And a trophy of his grace, he can save and wash and forgive and turn around and make it the most useful, prosperous, successful, profitable person that anyone's seen in a long time. And listen, this morning, I say that just to remind you because maybe there is someone that you look at or that comes to your mind and you think, yeah, I know that unprofitable person. Please don't lose hope for them. That was me too. You may not want to admit it, but quite honestly, before you came to Jesus, maybe you had a higher estimation of yourself, that was you too. Before you were living for the Lord, your life was a waste. That's just the truth. Mine was. The world might have thought I had something to offer, but I was sowing into all the wrong things and, and drinking out of all the wrong wells. But but when a life comes to Christ, it then has purpose. It becomes profitable because it has eternal profit spiritual profit real value to it and how wonderful to know that the lord delights to take someone and to make their life profitable and useful listen this morning if you are here maybe that's me man my life is i've wasted i've been messing up i've been blown it i've i've made such a mess of my life if you come to jesus give him your mess Give him your wasted life. Give him all the unprofitable things you've done for X many years. You come to Jesus, he'll take your life and he'll start to use it in a profitable way if you let him use your life by beginning to serve him. And that was the case with Onesimus. Now a very profitable man. Paul says, verse 12, I'm sending him back. He's coming back to you, Philemon. You, therefore, Paul says, please receive him. That is my own heart. He matters much to me. Paul says, it's like an extension of my heart, sending this guy back to you. But I know he belongs to you, Paul's saying. That's why I'm sending him back to you, whom, verse 13, I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains in the gospel. So he says, look, Philemon, he's become so profitable helping me and ministering to me. He says, truth be told, it's killing me. It's breaking my heart to send him back to you because he's become a really profitable servant. He's really helping me and advancing the gospel and and ministering to me here in my chains for the gospel, he says. And in some ways I thought, well, maybe it'd be a fair trade if I keep... uh, Onesimus, because I led Philemon to Christ and certainly he should be grateful and appreciative and and he kind of owes me something for leading him to Jesus. So Paul's thinking in his mind, that might not be a bad trade-off. I'll keep Onesimus now so that he can minister to me, he says, on your behalf in the things of the gospel. But Paul says here in verses 12 and 13, but he says, even though I wish to keep him with me, I'm sending him back to you. Because Paul understood he, he belongs to you. In that day, again, we don't like the thought of it, but slaves and servants were basically like property. They, they were. They were owned property. Didn't mean you had to treat them that way, but they were. They were owned property. So basically, Paul says, for me to keep him, in essence, I'd be keeping and stealing your property. That just wouldn't be right. And I love the lesson that Paul teaches us here in a sense in verse 12 uh, and 13, and, and that is this, simply, that though we may desire something, it's always more important to do what's right. See, Paul desired to keep Onesimus with him. That would have been his preference. He said, I'd rather have him work for me. (laughs) I'd like to keep him. But Paul says, but that really wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be right to benefit myself and serve myself and override what is right. The right thing is, though I wish this and I want this, I still need to do the right thing. And there are going to be times, listen, in your life where you're going to desire something But maybe what you desire means that you're going to have a conflict with still what's the right thing to do. Don't go by what you desire. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do the ethical thing. Do the moral thing. Do the right thing in the sight of God. Paul says, he is your servant, so therefore I'm sending him back. And and I need to send him back. No doubt he probably told Onesimus, you need to go make things right. You, you're forgiven now, yes, but you can't escape your past. You wronged him. You stole from him. And though you're forgiven and God's taken away your penalty, you still have an obligation in the sight of God to go back and to seek his forgiveness and to make things right with him. So Paul's sending him back here is a great example. And again, good reminder for us as well. If there's something we've done maybe in the past or we've wronged or offended or, or, or done something cruel or wrong, just because you're a Christian and you're forgiven and you've asked the Lord to forgive you, please hear me. That doesn't release you from going and making it right. If you've done something wrong, you have a moral and spiritual obligation to go and make it right. You should. You should. It's what's honoring to God. It's what's appropriate to people and respecting and valuing them. Forgiveness is one thing. Reconciliation and restitution are something many times that we overlook and ignore. And it's important if something bad's happened to go and make right and do restitution. And here Paul is commending that. That's why he's sending him back. He says, verse 14, though I would like to keep him, he says, Philemon, but without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So Paul says, I wanted to keep him, but I'm sending him back. But notice verse 14, he says, I'm asking you to receive him. Forgive him, receive him back as your brother. But he says, I I I want your good deed not to be by compulsion, that is because you're pressured or have to, but I want it to be voluntary. That's why Paul didn't order him. Again, remember back in verses 8 and 9? Paul says, I could just demand of you what to do as an apostle and you should do it. You should submit to my authority. But he says, I appealed to you in love's sake because I didn't want you to do the right thing because you felt pressured or compelled by me. I wanted you to do it out of a voluntary choice of your own free will. Again, tremendous wisdom in what Paul is doing here. Listen, please hear this. It is wise and important to give people room to make their own decision that's what paul does here paul says i know the right thing and i could pressure you to do the right thing and 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 i i i want you to do the right thing but paul says but i'm just going to let god work in your heart i need to give you the freedom to make your own decision i don't want you to do it because you're forced to I want you to do it because it is an act of your own willingness as of consideration. The best decisions people make are not due to pressure. They're due to someone giving consideration to what's right and then yielding their own voluntary willingness to say, yes, I've considered it and I'm going to embrace and do the right thing. Whether that is somebody receiving Jesus Christ after you've shared the gospel with them, Give people room. Should we plead with people to accept Christ? Yes. Should we encourage them? Yes. But we need to give people room to make a decision. It's a choice to follow Jesus Christ. I'd much rather somebody make a conscious, sincere choice than just pray a prayer to just get me away from them and live with a false security and be damned in hell for their whole life. And I'm sorry to say that strongly, but I have a great concern a lot of times that I have and many other Christians have at times even been guilty of that because we're so ambitious to see somebody get saved. God saves people. I don't save people. We don't save people. Somebody can pray to receive Jesus Christ in their bedroom with no one else around. People are saved by grace and through faith. And we should share the gospel. We've got to give people room that they can make a decision. At times, listen... As we share truth with someone else, I counsel people. They come to me, they need you know, wisdom, counsel, or maybe they're entrapped in some sin or they've done something wrong. And you, what do you do? We open up the word of God. We share the truth with them. But then I said, look, here's, here's how it's going to work. We're going to pray. And you're going to get up and you're going to leave my office. And you're going to do whatever you want. I'm not your parent. I can't make you do the right thing. I don't want to make you do the right thing. I don't want you to do it out of force or compulsion. I want you to do it because it's voluntary and right, and it comes from your heart. And we gotta be willing to have patience and trust the Lord. Trust the Lord on that. Whether it's your spouse you're talking to, whether it's even at times as parents, isn't it true? Especially as they get older. You know, I have teenagers now, 13 and 15, 17, almost 18. And and as they get older, it becomes all the more. Sometimes you just gotta give them room, tell them the truth, and just. Let them learn how to have the freedom to make their own decision and to just trust the Lord with that, to be willing to trust the Lord with that. And there's something very loving and tremendously wise. And Paul demonstrates that here by showing that he says, look, I'm asking you what to do, but I'm trusting that God will work in your heart in his way in time. And that ultimately you'll do this because you choose to. He says, verse 15, for perhaps he departed for a time for this purpose. That you might receive him forever, no longer as you notice your slave, but more than a slave, now a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Do you see what Paul brings to his attention as he's pleading with him to receive back his slave and to forgive him and to embrace him? I have that word circled in my Bible in verse 15. Paul says, For perhaps. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's saying, think about the bigger picture here, Philemon. I know what happened in that moment or in the past. It was hurtful. It was wrong. It's still grating on you. But he says, perhaps, perhaps, he says, the sovereign rule of God over all this, perhaps, he departed for a time so that you would get him back, not as your captured slave, but now as a born-again, forgiven brother in Christ. Christ who you can have a relationship with on a whole different level. And he says, perhaps. In essence, and Paul doesn't say it dogmatically. He says it, I don't know. He says, but Paul's saying this. Here's his heart. Paul's saying, this looks an awful lot like God to me. Maybe God let him depart. Maybe God let the breach in the relationship happen. Maybe God let this horrible, difficult thing happen. Perhaps that's what was necessary. For Onesimus to get into Rome and ultimately for God to wear him down and to to get him to the place where he would be so broken, eventually he would receive Christ. And so that you might then have him back. Think of the story of the prodigal. The prodigal son, Jesus tells, the prodigal son departed. Remember, he said, Father, I want all my inheritance now. Unloving, cruel, arrogant young man. His father gives him what he wants and he says, go. Here's what you want, go. And he gives him the freedom and he lets him go. But as the result of him departing, what happens? Squanders all the wealth, makes all his own hard choices, ends up eating pig slop. And it says in the pig slop, he comes to his senses. His heart turns to God and then he goes back to his father. And see, maybe a child departs. Maybe a spouse departs. Maybe a relationship, something happens. And, but perhaps... Perhaps maybe that just may be what is necessary and God in his providence superintending that God allows and orchestrates through those things. Ultimately, the most important thing is maybe someone comes to Christ and then maybe you get that person back on the other side, not the way they were, but as a brand new person with a brand new heart and a much more wonderful relationship as restoration comes together. And that's what Paul's pleading here, bringing this to his thought process and Paul says verse 17 if you count me as a partner receive him then as you would me but if he's wronged you or owes you anything Paul says put that on my account I Paul am writing with my own hand I will repay not to mention to you that you he reminds him remember you owe me your own soul your own self besides so Paul here in an incredible heart motivated for reconciliation And I don't know if Paul had an extra stock of cash somewhere as a minister of the gospel. But Paul says, look, what did he steal from you? Whatever he stole from you. Paul says, look, I'm asking you to receive him. But Paul says, look, if he's wronged you or he owes you something, Paul says, if if it's necessary, I'll pay his debt off. I'll pay his debt. What's it going to take, Paul says? I'm willing to take cost and sacrifice myself if that brings reconciliation. Paul says, whatever he owes, charge it to me. Put it on my account. Paul here was so motivated for reconciliation, he was willing to bear personal cost in the process to esteem their relationship over something material or a past error that had happened. Verse 20 says, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. You're refreshing everyone else there in Colossae, he says. How about you refresh my heart now by forgiving by loving, by receiving back this brother who's come to Christ, having confidence, this is called a presumptive close, Okay, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So Paul says, look, I'm confident. I'm sure you're going to make the right choice. I'm not telling you what to do, but he says, I'm really confident that you're going to do the right thing. I have confidence in you, confidence in what God's going to do in your heart as you listen to the Lord and pray and think this through. In fact, he says, I think you're even going to do more than I say. I think you'll do beyond just forgiving and receiving him back, having confidence in your obedience, knowing that you'll do even more than I say. But he says, meanwhile, prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So Paul says, pray for me. And by the way, Philemon, he says, prepare your guest room because I'm hoping as you pray for me, I'm trusting God's going to set me free and then I'm going to get to come back and visit you soon. Now talk about a little pressure on the accountability level there. He's writing this letter, hey, I'm sending this letter back with this runaway slave. Forgive him, receive him. I'm asking you to do these things. I'm not telling you. And by the way, I look forward to seeing you soon face to face and hearing how things went. you <laughs> imagine a little pressure there. Get your room ready. I'm planning on paying a visit. And that would have caused a little bit, no doubt, of accountability for him to realize, I don't want to have to face Paul if I didn't do the right thing. But accountability has a good purpose sometimes. Sometimes knowing you're going to have to face somebody is a very healthy thing. The Bible says, he who isolates himself rages against all wise counsel and seeks his own heart. Accountability is a healthy thing. Paul reminds, I'm going to come visit you, and he says, when I visit you, no doubt he's thinking, I hope to rejoice in what you've done. Now, uh, let me, before we close, just leave you a couple of thoughts in regards to this letter as a whole. The last few terms there are just some closing exhortation, greeting things at the end, no real instruction. But there are three characters you find in the story, Philemon, Paul, and Paul. And, and I think they all somewhat teach us just very simple and direct lessons. If you think of the Apostle Paul, in this letter here, Paul teaches the importance of intercession for those who have failed and need another chance. Think about that. Ananias really messed up. He wrecked his life. He did some really dumb and wrong things. But what's Paul do? He takes this failed man was empty and searching he points him to jesus he disciples him he accepts him he gives him a chance to serve and and now he writes a letter back and he says hey give this guy another shot he shows the value of interceding for those who failed and asking others encouraging others to give them another chance paul shows the importance of helping people accomplish reconciliation and again the wisdom importance of allowing people the freedom to make their own decisions And trusting that God can work in their lives as they come to their own decisions on matters. Philemon shows us that we need to value what God is doing in other people spiritually more than our own rights. Philemon no doubt had some personal feelings, but Paul's saying, look, what's more important, your feelings or forgiveness? Doing what's right. Esteeming that God actually saved this man and worked in his heart, and I think Philemon reminds us as well that we have to be open to extend forgiveness even when it's really hard. Because sometimes in certain situations, something may be really, really hard happened. And we have to be open that God can save and that God may want us to forgive and restore and Onesimus shows us the importance of accepting responsibility for what we've done wrong and then humbly facing it with those we've done wrong to and seeking their forgiveness and lastly I leave you with this thought to meditate on as we enter back into worship we are all Onesimuses all of us are we all belong to God and yet what do we do? We run away from God, we steal from God, we rob from God our lives and all the glory and, and we run away and then what happens? Jesus intercedes for us. Think of what Paul says there, especially in verses 17 and 18. Paul says, receive him as you would me and whatever he's wronged or owes you, put that on my account. Listen, gang, that's what Jesus has done for every one of us. Jesus says, Father, receive, Tony, as you would me. He's in Christ now. And whatever he's done wrong, put it on my account. Jesus takes our sin and he puts it on his account so that we can be free and we can be restored back into relationship with God.